Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Matthew Mercier. I was like, Mom, that's Kermit, you can't do that. And she's like, honey, Kermit's not real. He's a puppet. I said, you're wrong, he's a Muppet. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to say, I can't say how thrilled, how thrilled and grateful I am for how our first two live stream shows have gone. We did the second one this past Friday night, and I was so buzzing afterwards that I, I couldn't really get to, sl- to sleep. I was so thrilled, so excited. And our next live online risk show is coming up on Saturday, April 18th at 2 p.m. New York time, 7 p.m. London time. It's scheduled to be easy for our fans in Europe to watch. So we hope all our fans in Europe will make sure to come to this one. But remember, anyone can watch anywhere in the world. Get tickets and information for 12 at risk-show.com slash tour. If you want to get tickets for a friend, there's information on how to do that also at risk-show.com slash tour. If you buy a ticket and you don't get the confirmation email from Risk with information on how to watch the show within a few minutes, make sure to email me at kevin at risk-show.com and I'll resend the email to you. And remember, if you want free tickets to our future online shows, become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk and each week we post a message there for our patrons on how they can get free tickets for the online shows we also post the recordings of the online shows on patreon for uh, our patrons to watch there later each week on our social media and our email list we will announce how folks can get free tickets to these shows if they're experiencing financial difficulty so make sure to follow us at risk show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and sign up for our email list at risk-show.com slash tour to see those announcements. And by the way, the cast, holy shit. (laughs) This cast on Saturday, April 18th, is every one of these people have told absolute classic stories on Risk some multiple times. Dixie De La Tour of body storytelling from San Francisco. Richard Cardillo and Jude Trader Wolf are two of our favorite New York-based storytellers. And Will Attenborough from London is going to be there too. So come on out, especially you folks over in Europe on Saturday at 7 p.m. London time. Remember, it's risk-show.com slash tour. And I want to give a shout out to our latest Patreon members, Louis, Dave Jones, and Reyes Sandoval. Oh my gosh, we are so deeply grateful to people who are helping us out over at Patreon right now. We desperately need it in order to keep this running. I don't know if you've heard, but there is a crisis throughout all of podcasting right now because advertisers are either backing out or or willing to give much less money for their ads on shows. It's, it's you know, a big problem all over the place right now. But our Patreon is so much fun to be a member of. 
there are literally over a hundred bonus stories over there, not to mention all of the other bonus content. Like, for example, we're just about to upload an interview that I did, a fantastic conversation with one of everyone's favorite risk storytellers, Ray Christian. Look for that at patreon.com slash risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Air behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Resilience. I was shocked to discover that in our nearly 500 episodes so far, uh, we had never called one that because so many Risk stories are about precisely that, are about the way that people go on, the way that they face extraordinary situations and transcend eventually. I spent all of last year reading the first two of the great Taoist sages, and the first of the great Taoist sages, Lao Tzu, very famously wrote in the Tao Te Ching, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And I've just finally started reading the third of the great Taoist sages, Lietze, who <laughs> was about a century later writing to his followers, have you finished your journey of a thousand miles? Well, I'm here to tell you that the Tao is eternal. So go on. <laughs> just go on. One way or another, go on. I've gotten a little bit better at uh, keeping the apartment somewhat clean and eating somewhat healthily and getting some meditation and exercise in. And maybe I'm naive, but I have begun to feel somewhat hopeful that this period we're living through will have more and more and more people asking the question, what would be most helpful to those who are more vulnerable than I am? I think that is the key question of our era. And I'm hopeful that this period we're living in now will put that question more front and center in more Americans' hearts. Another thing that's made me feel so hopeful lately is how wonderful it feels that those first two live streams were such inspiring occasions. You know, it's, it's a thrill to know that so much of the Risk audience is showing up for those. And it's been a real shock to see how 
connected they make us feel uh, it, to see how you know the, the 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 way that people in the audience reach out on the chat and then talk about it afterwards online and the way we do the q and a's with the storytellers it's an incredibly dynamic and and very intimate feeling live theater sort of thing that that we're doing online and and i just it's a surprise it's a surprise that it's working so well the next one is saturday at 2 p.m new york time 7 p.m london time and tickets are always at risk-show.com slash tour let's get to the stories now uh in a little bit you're going to hear a remarkable story by a remarkable lady lauren tom who you might know from uh, futurama she was also in the Joy Luck Club, uh, you know, so many amazing acting roles, voice roles, and such. Uh, before that, we're going to hear from Gianmarco Ceresi, one of our favorite comedians here in New York City. But before that, we're going to hear a story from Matthew Mercier. Matthew shared this story at a recent Risk Live show in New York City, back when we were doing the show on stage in front of a live audience. Here is Matthew now with a story we call How to Get to Sesame Street. I'm holding the keys to Sesame Street. I'm literally holding them up, set of keys, and showing them to my date, who's sitting across the table from me, this beautiful Irish girl with charcoal black hair, milky white complexion. But she's drenched in sweat. And she's unsmiling, and she's uncomfortable. She's shifting in her seat. She's looking at her watch. But the minute I mention Sesame Street, her eyes pop. She gets this mischievous grin on her face. She's like, what are you talking about? I was like, I've got the keys to Sesame Street. Hey, do you want to go? And I'm not kidding. I'm not lying. I've got the keys to Sesame Street. My childhood dream that summer, for just a brief moment, is one step closer. My childhood dream is to be Jim Henson. So this childhood started on the ground floor of a tenement building here in the city. And on the ground floor, we didn't get any television reception whatsoever. Uh, which was perfectly fine with my parents. They were both uh, very strict and both ex-clergy. Dad was a priest, mom was a nun. That's a whole nother story, <laughs> which I won't get into right now. So, um, so it was perfectly fine for their good little Catholic boy to not watch television because it was all sex and violence as far as they were concerned. However, like a lot of parents from that time period, they quickly got wind of a new television show that was on air and it was supposedly educational and all the best children were watching it. So <laughs> they went out to get a magical black box. They placed it on top of the television. And all of a sudden, we had PBS, clear, sharp, clear. And I learned, like so many others, to say my ABCs and count to 20 and to treat people kindly and with tolerance. And I was inducted into the world of Big Bird, Oscar the Grouch, uh, and Kermit the Frog. Kermit, I loved frogs anyway, and now there was a talking one who was sophisticated. He seemed like a leader. I just loved him. <laughs> I loved him. 
I loved how he got angry and he scrunched up his face really tightly. And I, I, I tried doing that at the dinner table and I didn't want to eat my vegetables, right? And I just became obsessed. Even after we moved out to the country, I'd go out in the creek and collect bullfrogs and bring them back. And my mother would scream and throw them out. And she's like, and I was like, Mom, that's Kermit. You can't do that. And she's like, honey, Kermit's not real. He's a puppet. I said, you're wrong. He's a Muppet. So thus became a lifelong obsession. I grew up and so did Kermit. And, but one of the most distinctive moments I remember from the early Muppet shows, I forget, I think it might have been during the pilot. At the end of the show, the camera pulls back and breaks the fourth wall and you see all the puppeteers underneath their creations, right? That's when I introduced to Henson and Frank Oz, right? All of the people are underneath and they've got their arms up and I thought, wow, that's, how do I become a part of that? That's incredible. I think I want to be a puppeteer. And then years later, flash forward to college, I'm studying film and television, looking to be a writer, and I'm down the television department, and on the bulletin board is a flyer with Kermit's disembodied head, and it says, internships at Jim Henson Studios in New York. And I was like, oh my God, this is destiny calling. All these old childhood desires come rolling up inside of me and gave me this confidence in this brio I didn't know I have. So in the interview, I said, I'm your man. I, Kermit, I love frogs. I'm just about, I'm all about, I'm born to this. I mean, I'm ready to break out into an acapella version of the rainbow connection. Like that's how bad this is. And all this confidence that I didn't know I had, it gets me the job. So I get the internship, but now I have to figure out how to live in New York as a college student. And the only way I'm able to do that is if I crash with my godmother in the Bronx, way up in the northern Bronx, like way up top. So very lonely and isolated. I didn't imagine I was going to go on too many dates that summer. But there happened to be in the neighborhood this Irish girl who was literally just come over from Ireland, and she was staying with her godmother. And we met through my godmother's family or something like that. And um, so we met, and we kind of bonded over our mutual tortured Catholic childhoods. I think she was kind of turned on by the fact that I was a love child of ex-clergy. Very, she was like, well, I'd really triggered something in her Irish self. And uh, we tried to get together. You know, the culture was telling us, you have to lose your virginity. I mean, I was a virgin at that point. I'm pretty sure she was. But we weren't talking about this because we were oppressed Catholics. And so we're trying to get this unspoken thing. We're trying to break our, our shackles together. But when you get two repressed Catholics together trying to do this, it's like two negative ions, like bouncing against each other. Like one has to corrupt the other. And neither of us were doing that. And I just, my Catholic childhood had made me a, a, a very young emotionally. And that carries over into your adulthood more than you want to hope. So I thought, all right, we'll just, we'll get together at some point. We'll figure this out. So in the meantime, my childhood dream is overworking me as I'm now an unpaid intern at Jim Henson Studios. I'm commuting into the city five days a week, but it was pretty magical to begin with. The studio was here on the Upper East Side quite symbolically in the shadow of the Fox News building. I'd walk past this giant Borg-like ship and the studio itself was very unassuming. It was this cathedral-like doorway with a, just the initials JH on the apex. You would never have known it was there. And even the locks on the door are silent. When they buzz you in, it just hissed, and the cathedral door would open, and you walk into like a church, right? Because the Muppets, all these retired Muppets were hanging on the wall. Um, and, it, and there was pictures of Henson on the set of The Dark Crystal. So it was amazing. Now, it wasn't the Sesame Street it wasn't that set. It was a satellite studio. And the classic Muppets weren't there. So I was a little disappointed. But when I wasn't doing drudge work as an intern, like copies and making tapes, I was helping with them. They were filming a television series that year for Nickelodeon. 
they were doing the um, uh, Dr. Seuss characters. So it was all the Dr. Seuss uh, Muppets. It was like Cat in the Hat, Yertle the Turtle, Horton, all of that. I got to be on set a number of times. And the first thing that I noticed when I watched these puppeteers at work is if you're a professional puppeteer, man or woman, you have to be ripped. You have to be incredibly strong because your arms are up in the air like five hours a day and it's no joke and you're drenched in sweat and their voices are getting hoarse because they're doing all these crazy things, right? And so I said, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> I mean, I had a new, I mean, you, you idealize it from a distance and all of a sudden you see it and you're like, wow, that's crazy. And then this profession that I had romanticized and if you've been on a set, you know it's incredibly boring at times. There's lots of downtime. And so I'm watching this profession that I've romanticized. The magic is slowly starting to seep out and it's replaced by this mundane, quotidian, maybe a little bit drudgery, which I think is at the root of all creative enterprises, though I didn't know that at the time. So, uh, <laughs> but it never got less, it was always fun, but it also never got less than surreal to watch these men and women create this whole childlike atmosphere and then deal with their very adult lives. Like one, <laughs> one poor guy, I think he literally got served divorce papers in the middle of the shoot. Oh, so, and he's, then he comes into work and he has to put up this Seussian creature with orange hair like howdy ho folks let's get together right and then when he's on break he's chain smoking he's like my fucking ex-wife i can't stand it alimony that fucking bitch and then he's back up there like let's work it out everything's fine right when it's not what he should have been saying he's like it's all bullshit like that's what he should have been saying but he's just he had to be a professional and so um it never and then of course it's television so it's high stress and the director of this project he was a nice guy but he looked like a muppet he'd been with the company and I think that's what happens. You get muppetized, and he looked like a fraggle. His hair was out like this, and he was very condescending. He was a total dick, right? Absolute dick. I mean, he was stressed out. He's a nice guy, but he was a dick. And, and then they just, uh, the, one of the crew members came along and said, this guy thinks he's making Sophie's Choice, man. It's no big deal, right? So it's just a kid's show. Give it a break. So all this adult stuff is seeping in. And it's starting to, again, the magic is, is starting to dissipate. And I said, maybe I don't want to be a puppeteer. Maybe I don't want to work in television. And that kind of depressed me. But I said, I'm not getting out of this summer without seeing Kermit the fucking frog. <laughs> or I'm not getting out of here without a date with the Irish girl. And all of a sudden, in the dog days of August, both things happened at the same time. I arranged to meet this girl at a, a restaurant in Midtown. And then Mark, this is my boss, he comes in and he says, all right, tomorrow there's a big day. All the big guns are going to be here. All the Muppets are coming in, all the puppeteers, all the puppets. We got to get this place spick and span. I was like, tonight? He's like, yep, tonight. I was like, Christ. So all of us are running around and everyone's excited and we're cleaning the place. And I said, Mark, I got a date. I got to go. He's like, well, don't let me stop you, stud. Go ahead. So, so I ran out to this date. And it's the middle, again, it's New York in August. The subways are broken. Right? You know what that means. So I have to run, walk to the date, and by the time I get there, my armpits are fountains. I am just drenched, and I am late to the date. I sit down, and they have seated us next to the fish tank, which is bubbling. It's got algae. It smells like a riverbed, and <laughs> it's just awful. And it's right away, as soon as we, she and I begin talking, it's clear we have nothing in common except our tortured Catholic childhoods, which is not a basis for anything. And I'm thinking, I'm trying really hard to try, how am I going to connect with this girl? And then I pat my pockets, and I realize that I, in my rush to get to this date, have forgot, I've got the studio keys in my pocket. 
And when things get desperate, I get dorky. It's just the way I, and so I said, I pull out the keys, I'm like, do you know how to get to Sesame Street, Mona? <laughs> and she looks, it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I, I said, I've got the keys to the studio. I, I have to go back and we should go to this. And she's like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm like, I'm not fucking kidding. Let's go to the studio right now. We thank God we have an adventure now. And so we get up, we leave that restaurant. The sun has gone down now, so everything's cool and calm. And, and we're talking about our favorite Muppet episodes, right? We're not talking about each other. We're just talking about some pop culture thing, but it's fine. I'm totally, and she's totally enamored with the secret doorway. And we get in there. And now all the Muppets, like it's, it's completely dark. Like there's no one there. I think, and, and walk in, all the Muppets on the wall now look like um, taxidermy. With, their mouths are open, they got googly eyes, and they're staring down at us, like, what are you doing here, Matt? And, um, but it's, we walk into the studio, and they told me that, that the Muppets were gonna be, you know, coming that night, and so we flick on the lights, and there they all are. Cookie Monster, Big Bird, Miss Piggy, Gonzo, they're all there. We are beside ourselves. We're like kids in a candy store. We're rolling around, and they're all on these giant rods, you know, and so we're just, it's perfect for taking pictures. So we're snapping pictures left and right, and then she turns to me. She's like, Matt, where's Kermit? I look around, I said, oh yeah. No, Matt, where's Kermit? She says it again, like she's really pissed, because if your date tells you that he's taking you to Jim Henson Studios, you don't do that and then not produce the frog <laughs> so I'm like fuck I, where's, so I, I'm starting to like, do things now the interns really should, I open closets I open drawers I'm looking finally I unwrap this muslin tarp that was like on the floor and he's like wrapped like a sacred object which I suppose he is and so there he is I pull him up on his rod and she, I think she's going to cry she's like oh my god I'm in love and I thought that's a little strong but alright so so I put him up, and um, she's like, take my picture. And so she goes, and she puts her arm around him, and she starts stroking his little velvet head, like right between his eyeballs. And then she purses her lips and kisses him on the corner of his amphibious mouth. And I'm framing the picture, and I'm just thinking, like, that should be me. <laughs> Kermit has stolen my fucking date. And I'm like, it's just a sock with fucking ping pong ball eyes. It, you think it's easy being green. It's not easy being me, man. I'm like, but I stuff it all down. I take the picture. And that's when I hear the studio door open behind us. And she flips out and she, boom, she hits Kermit and he goes down. And I'm like, oh, no. And so I grab Kermit. I bring him back up. I turn around and there's Mark, my boss. And he's like, hey, Matt. How you doing? Is this your date? Like, yeah, yeah. I just and she's looking at the ground like we've been caught in Catholic school masturbating. Like, it's <laughs> two repressed Catholics. Like, oh my God, we've been caught. And he's like, oh, I just. Uh, I was like, yeah, the keys. I, blah, blah, you know, I forgot that we were just. I had to bring them back. He's like, well, yeah, I'm glad you brought them back. That's good. Um, thank you. Uh, where's Kermit's eyes? And I look, and Kermit is without eyes and I'm like look I, um, I don't I, I don't know I just and it, I, he's like it's alright he's got a big day tomorrow you should probably put him back and, uh, and get out of here I was like alright sure, yeah fine do you want a picture with the eyeless Kermit I was like no 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 it's fine fine I totally regret that to this day I should have gotten a picture with the eyeless Kermit once in a lifetime but so we le so we left the studio she and I it was a long ride back to the Bronx and 
we laughed about it a little bit, but we should have laughed more. I don't know why, but that's what happens with tortured Catholics. Like, you don't laugh when you sin. <laughs> like, I'm going to hell. So, so we said goodbye, and I never saw her again. And next day, I go back to the studio with this giant pit in my stomach. But I can't afford to be a Debbie Downer because it's, it's a huge day now because all the big wigs, like Kevin Clash, who does Elmo, Frank Oz, who did Grover, Brian Henson, they're all there. And they're all shooting this PSA. I forget what it was, but it's fantastic. It, everyone's laughing. Nobody's stressed out. Everyone's having a good time doing weird things with all these iconic creatures. And it's just, it's absolutely phantasmagorical. But he's looking at me. My boss is looking at me. And he, like with this smirk on his face, like I know what you did. I'm like, oh my God, what did he tell? I'm not gonna get college credit or something. Really. And at lunch, I sit down and he sits down across from me very purposefully. He like sits down and he's got these googly eyes and he's got this big smile on his face. I'm like, oh God. And then he reaches in his pocket and he takes out the eyeballs. <laughs> and he slides them across the table like two poker chips. And he's like, go ahead, souvenir. I was like, up, oh, up, oh, please. I'm, I'm sorry. He's like, hey, man, come on. You're not the first. You're not the last. This place does something to people. It's magical. It's whatever. I'm like, really? He's like, really? But, you know, it's like, to be honest, you know, I, before I came in on you, too, I, I kind of spied on you. I watched you. I was like, really? I was like, that's fucking creepy. What? He's like, yeah, man. It's like, you know, you don't, I don't often see someone get cock-blocked by Kermit the Frog. You're a fucking legend, man. I was like, thank you, thank you. But that, that in a nutshell is the Henson spirit, like what he did. Like it was, I like to think that that summer was brought to you by the letter F, right? It was family, because the Henson, the, the, it's true. Like it was like this big, warm family. And then there was forgiveness. Like he, he did something wrong. Okay, no big deal, whatever. And then there was failure. I failed so much. I didn't, I, so you don't want, so I'm not a puppeteer, big deal. So he didn't fall in love with this one girl, big deal. I just, I went back to college that fall more confident actually than I'd ever been. I said, I'm going to develop at my own rate, my own career, my own sexuality. Fuck the culture. Thank you, Jim Henson and one special frog. Thank you. Someday we'll find it The rainbow connection The lovers, the dreamers I found out I was straight at musical theater camp because all the guys were straight. Like we'd be warming up for dance class like, you know who I want to bone? Liza Minnelli. And then we'd learn one Fosse routine and be like, no, I want to be Liza Minnelli. And I was waiting for it to happen to me. But no matter how many of these conversion camps I attended, I still wanted Liza to sit on my face. And a lot of people think that straight guys in theater must get a lot of action because, you know, there's less competition. But women approach men in musical theater the same way you approach sushi at 7-Eleven. Like, even if you're in the mood, you don't quite trust it. But I did get 
some action at this one camp I did at Cap 21, which used to be a part of NYU, because the last day of camp coincided with my 15th birthday. So to celebrate, I had 15 shots of vodka, which is not a sustainable tradition, and I invited everyone back to my dorm room. Only two people showed up. The only straight guy left at camp, and let's just call him Steve and Kevin, who was one of the few campers who had come out before camp had started because he went to like a, a Montessori art school where all the kids were encouraged to, to be themselves and try cocaine. So it's me, straight guy Steve, and gay Kevin. And we're all just sitting on my bed discussing the pros and cons of Barbara Streisand's interpretation of Dolly in the movie version of Hello, Dolly. When out of nowhere, straight guy Steve starts unbuckling my cargo shorts. And I looked down at him and I said, Steve, what are you doing? And he said, Jamarco, I'm straight, but I can make you feel amazing. And I said, Steve... I'm also straight, but go for it. And I can see gay Kevin watching us like, yes, the last two straights at the same time. (laughs) So Steve's working my dick. Kevin's working his own dick. And look, I don't know if I'm just too straight or it was the 15 shots of vodka, but no matter how hard Steve tried, you couldn't tell my dick from my belly button because I'm an Audi. And eventually, Steve gets so frustrated, he just scoots over and starts sucking Kevin's dick. No eye contact, even. It was just like like a dick-sucking assembly line, and my dick was defective. And the last thing I remember before I passed out, I'm lying on my side, just watching Steve devour Kevin's rock-hard cock. And I just thought, God, I am so lonely. Blackout. I woke up the next morning because my phone's ringing and I can barely move. I'm so hungover. Steve and Kevin are gone. The bed is covered in dry cum. And I pick up the phone. It's my dad who had driven up to New York that morning to come pick me up. And he's, he's furious. He's like, son, I'm here. I've been waiting for hours. Are you ever coming out? And I said, I don't think I ever will. Thank you, Kevin. Oh, good. Good, it's good and nice and low. You guys are so amazing. Thank God. Okay, here we go. Both of our cars screeched to a halt past our respective stop signs in the parking garage of the Beverly Center, an upstale shopping mall in Los Angeles. We both want to turn the same direction and have executed the California roll, which is to say we didn't really stop at all. It's 2003. I'm a young mom and actress living in Los Angeles. I, you know, just bought a rhinestone collar for my dog Vivica at a store called Pet Love, and I don't care about this little thing that happened. I'm in a good mood. So I signal to the lady in the gray Buick to go first. But apparently, she doesn't want to go first. Why is she sitting in her car trying to bore a hole through my forehead with her eyes? Okay, now she's getting out of her car and slamming the door. Oh my God, here she comes. 
She's about 70 years old with short, red, disheveled hair and pasty white skin. Her eyebrows point up like she shaved them off and painted them back on so she could look more sinister. (laughs) It's working. She looks like a scarecrow on crack. She's at my door. She's motioning for me to get out of my car. Okay, this is bad. (laughs) I can feel my hands shaking as I shift my car into park. I hate confrontation. And besides, I actually think this broad could seriously kick my ass. I carefully step down from my SUV so I don't fall off my four-inch platform clogs. And she still stands a good six inches taller than me. I'm five feet tall, so I've been wearing platforms since I could walk. This, this is the 2020 version. See? <laughs> um, oh, my God. Um, I wish that I had worn pants instead of this micro mini skirt. My white tank top with the words open 24 hours written in gold glitter is not helping either. I probably bought that shirt at Forever 21 thinking it could actually work, but that outfit looked like I was going for Forever 14. Either way, not my finest moment. These were definitely not fighting clothes. I might as well have been wearing a shirt that said, come get me, I'm a poofball. I can feel myself leaving my body. I'm now just a head, sort of floating up here. I stand about a foot from her, and I brace myself. She points a bony white finger at me, and then, like an overwrought version of Catherine Hepburn, she yells, look where your car is! And suddenly, I go from being terrified to wanting to bust out laughing. And without thinking, I yell back, look where your car is. And she goes, you're over the line. I say, you're over the line. She said, you're driving too fast. I say, you're driving too fast. Oh my god, I could have done that for a half an hour. I was having so much fun. like all those moments when I wished I could have just come up with something when I'm being confronted and look I'm doing it it's liberating this scarecrow squints her eyes Catherine Hepburn has left the building and has been replaced by Clint Eastwood in drag she takes a big inhale and says you chink whoa I wasn't expecting that one. I can't very well yell, you chink, can I? <laughs> I'm, I'm always caught off guard by this kind of attack because it had never occurred to me that I looked different from other people. I grew up in Highland Park, Illinois, an all-Jewish suburb. I had been to 84 bar mitzvahs by the time I was 13 and knew the whole Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu prayer. My mother raised me Catholic, and my father believed in ancestral worship, so my spiritual upbringing was sort of a religious poo-poo platter. (laughs) But in my heart of hearts, God was Charlton Heston as Moses parting the Red Sea, and I was one of his ardent followers. So when the kids started calling me Ching Chong Chinaman, I used to think they were talking to someone behind me, because I thought I was a white Jewish girl with a name like Rachel, (laughs) Rebecca, or Esther. (laughs) I notice a button on the lapel 
a fur beige trench coat. It says WWJD, and in smaller letters beneath, what would Jesus do? <sighs> okay. Sorry. She didn't just say that, did she? I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus would do. <laughs> I can't deal with this ugly side of the world. I just want to go home and watch Teletubbies with my three-year-old Ollie. Oh, come on, Lauren. Just do it for your son. I, I mean, don't be so weak. Don't be such a blank nothing. Just say something. Say anything. Say fuck you. Just stand up and open your mouth. I raise my head. I look at her straight in the eye. And I say, nothing. I stagger back to my car as if I'd been punched, and I wish she actually had punched me because my recovery time would have been faster. Her words stayed with me for months, maybe years. Even when I was little, I knew that uh, sticks and stones would be a better choice for me because words have always hurt me. I was so shaken that I felt like our cars had actually crashed and that I just suffered a trauma. So I drove straight home and I called my meditation teacher, an 86-year-old, East Indian man named Eknath Iswaran, who came here as a Fulbright scholar and taught English and meditation at Berkeley in the 60s. He taught me how to meditate, and no one could center me more quickly than he could. I told him what happened, and he told me to breathe and then envision three gates that would act as barriers to letting thoughts in or out. Our thoughts about others, their thoughts directed at us, and even our thoughts about ourselves. No thoughts are allowed in or out without first passing through these three tests. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? So let's review. She called me a chink. Is that true? Well, I guess technically it is, but you Asian-American would have been nicer. <laughs> Even you Oriental would have been better, but that word always makes me think of rugs. <laughs> Was her comment necessary? No. Was it kind? No. Not unless you're a masochist. And uh, what about my response? I guess since I didn't say anything, I'm in the clear. But still to this day, I don't know what response would have seemed appropriate. But perhaps, you know, it's necessary to say something true in a moment like that. For example, my son, Ollie, when he was in preschool, a little girl bit him. And so the teacher sat them both down and had Ollie say to the girl, that hurt me, and I didn't like it when you did that. And then she sent the girl home to show her that that behavior is not appropriate. I wish I could have given that lady a timeout in the corner of the garage until they just banished her from Beverly Center until she learned to control her tongue. I asked my sister-in-law what she would have said, and she said, well, if you were going for racist, you hit it. And my best friend said she would have 
just said, shame on you, and that would have sufficed. But that didn't feel quite right either. Like, I'm not sure that there really is an appropriate response. I wish I could feel myself wanting to take the high road like Michelle Obama, but I know that I'm a human being and I'm not always capable of that. So I'm going to cut myself some slack for having no response. But since I tend to be a kind of life by committee sort of person, I'd like to invite you to share with me what your response might have been. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at laurentom9000. You can contact me there. Just make sure it passes through the three gates. Thank you. I hope you survive. Stay safe inside. And nobody dies. Cause you know this is entirely avoidable In your eyes You might despise A guy that looks like me Even if he ain't Chinese Oh Lord, bless your heart You don't know Blame every Asian at Costco But see, the thing that scares you so scares me too So Stop looking at me like I am a Chinese virus Cause the flu doesn't give a fuck if you got slanty eyelids Baby can we please set aside this Asian bias Are we really gonna be that dumb that this divide us this is Risk. This is Jimmy Wong behind me now. He has a ton of great music. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at JF Wong. And before Jimmy Wong, we heard from Lauren Tom. That was a remarkable story that she shared the last time that Risk was live in San Francisco in January. Lauren, as she said in her story, is on Twitter at LaurenTom9000. Before Lauren, we heard a little anecdote from a New York-based comedian, John Marco Ceresi, who you can find on all the socials at John Marco Ceresi. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. 
All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story that Gail Thomas shared on the very first Risk Online live stream show. And before that, a little something from Wanda Wilson-Bowser, one of our favorite folks. She shared a story when Risk was in Cincinnati uh, a couple years ago. Uh, but before that, we're going to hear a story from the amazing Don Luby. Dawn is the co-writer, co-director of the feature film Greener Grass, which is now streaming on Hulu, and you can find her on Instagram at Dawn Luby. Here she is now. This is a story that was recorded, I think, at the Risk Los Angeles show in 2016. <laughs> We've had this one for a while now, uh, so it's kind of a treat to be listening back to it. Here is Dawn now with a story we call such great heights. Um, so I'm not sure if you can tell, but I'm tall. <laughs> And uh, I'm six foot three, almost six foot four. And as a very tall woman, people often make comments about my height. Uh, occasionally, these are a little bit rude. I've been called a freaking giant, or um, I've twice been mistaken as the oldest Hanson brother. So that happens. Um, but more often than not, people ask me one of two questions. Do you play basketball and do you play volleyball? Totally normal things to ask a tall girl. And I usually don't mind, except the question, do you play volleyball, always brings to mind a kind of shameful moment from my past. And the truth is that, yes, I did play volleyball for one week in seventh grade, and it left me in crisis counseling. <laughs> um, so before seventh grade, I had never really played sports of any kind. I didn't have time for them because I was focused on my one true passion in life, hip-hop dancing. <laughs> and as a skinny white girl from Nebraska, I really felt hip-hop was the path for me. Um, <laughs> I, I was convinced I was going to become a fly girl on In Living Color by the time I was 16. And uh, I went to hip-hop class every week. And to this day, I can still do a really good running man, which I'm proud of. Um, but while I bided my time waiting for the Wayans brothers to come knocking on my door, I wasted my time going to junior high. And it was on the first day of seventh grade that Ms. Divis, the volleyball coach of our school, noticed me in the hallway. Now, Ms. Divis was tall, like me, even taller, and like super muscular with a low voice and like puffy, long, blonde hair. I'd say she was like um, a female Michael Bolton, but she was more of just a Michael Bolton, I'd say. <laughs> Um, so, Ms. Davis was a college volleyball player herself, now a um, junior high science teacher, and she never really left her glory days behind her on the volleyball court. She wanted a winning team 
bad. And when she saw me like lumbering down the hallway on the first day of school, a foot taller than all the other girls, she saw volleyball gold. She knew I was going to be her star striker. And I was basically the holy grail of volleyball players. I, on the other hand, had no interest in joining the volleyball team, despite her like repeated urgings and begging me to do so because, you know, I was focused on hip hop and I I didn't want anything to get in the way of that. Um, But I have always been someone that's had a very, very hard time saying no to people. I hate confrontation of any kind. I, I can't handle conflict. So basically, I ended up on the volleyball team. And from the very beginning, I knew I sucked at volleyball. The night before our first practice, I went out and bought a No Fear t-shirt because I thought that's what people that play sports wore. And uh, despite the logo on my shirt, I was terrified. And I walked into the gym and it was like loud and, and the sound of like sneakers screeching on the floor. And it just was very overwhelming to me. And then I tried hitting the ball, which was a mistake because it stung. And I decided I couldn't do that anymore. So um, I developed the swerve technique, which was kind of this thing where the ball would come towards me and I'd swerve and let it go by. And it worked out great for me. My hands didn't sting, but Ms. Divis didn't like this technique. She would get all like red in the face and glare at me. And I could just see her hopes of a winning team being dashed right before her eyes. And really, there was many problems with volleyball, but the main one was that it met every day after school for two hours. And on Thursdays, I had my hip hop class that started at four. So I knew I was gonna have to leave volleyball practice early in order to get to hip hop on time. So all week I kept waiting for the right time to tell Ms. Divis, hey, I'm gonna have to leave early on Thursday, don't worry about it. And I I couldn't do it, I just, totally incapable of confronting someone. I was so scared that I would let her down, that she would be disappointed in me for choosing hip-hop over volleyball. And for whatever reason, I couldn't approach her. So I waited Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, never said anything. And finally, it was Thursday, the day I knew I had to leave early. And I, I couldn't tell her. I just kept looking at her and looking at the clock, knowing I had to leave. And, and, you know, swerving out of the way of the ball. And it just didn't seem like the right time. And finally, it was 3.45, and I had to go. And I still hadn't told her. So I decided to make a run for it. (laughs) I just stopped mid-court, took a deep breath, and I sprinted as fast as I could out the gym, down the hallway and into the locker room and I started tearing off my gym clothes. My No Fear t-shirt went down on the floor and I started putting on my hip hop outfit, which was a neon spandex number. And I was putting it on as fast as I could and I thought that I had gotten away with it, that I had ran so fast that no one saw me. And then just as I was pulling up the final strap to my unitard, in walked Mrs. Divis looking pissed. And I immediately just lost it. I started sobbing uncontrollably, like shaking, hyperventilating, sobbing. And Miss Divis, her face just dropped and she asked, what's wrong? And I knew in that moment as I was hyperventilating in my leotard that I 
couldn't tell her the truth, which was dumb, just that I had to leave to go to dance, because that wouldn't warrant this crazy reaction. So I dug in and I told her the only lie I could think of at the time. I said, my cousin died. <laughs> she was hit by a drunk driver. <laughs> and Miss Divis looked at me, you know, a, a little bit concerned and, and I was shaking and just crying in this leotard and I said, I have to go to her wake now. <laughs> and then I just walked out the door and she let me leave and I walked to hip hop and I felt a little guilty at what I said, but you know, I was able to compose myself and go to class and I did really well. And so I mostly felt pretty good about it. Um, and you know, bad, I killed off my cousin, but what can you do? And um, it wasn't until uh, the next day I was sitting in homeroom feeling a little guilty and um, then I get uh, a note from our guidance counselor to report to her. And apparently Miss Divis had told her, you know, about my cousin and that I was going through this grief and needed to talk to someone. And so I went to the counselor and I was thinking, I just, I should come clean. This is so dumb. I'll just explain what happened. It'll be a little funny thing. But when I got to the office, I again, I just froze and I, I didn't want to admit I lied. So I spent the next hour talking all about my dead cousin. <laughs> I, I provided many details. I, I talked about the drunk driver. He was 26 from Omaha, <laughs> the big city. And uh, I, I went into details about the funeral, about how my sister had sang The Rose by Bette Midler. I was so many details that I just filled in. And um, then I made an appointment for the following week. And uh, that was that. And uh, it wasn't until, uh, it was after school, I went to volleyball practice. And Ms. Divis came up to me and she said, I'm so sorry, you know, how are you doing? And I just felt so guilty. And I'm like, I can't keep doing this. I can't, you know, next Thursday, what am I going to do? Make up another dead relative? Like, I, I, I have to just quit volleyball. And so I looked up at Miss Divis with tears in my eyes. And I said, Miss Divis, I have to quit the team. I don't want to let you down. But... I just need to be with my family during this really difficult time. <laughs> and she nodded, and she understood. And to this day, whenever someone says, oh, do you play volleyball? I honestly rather wish they would just call me a freaking giant. <laughs> Thank you so much. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be tall. Haha, <laughs> you short little leprechaun. Do you find something comical about my appearance when I'm driving my automobile? Yeah. Everyone needs to drive a vehicle, even the very tall. This was the largest auto that I could afford. Should I, therefore, be made the subject of fun? I guess so. Now, please don't derail this next story. Take a seat, Fringy, and let a tall man tell this tall tale. Tall people.
I am quarantined with my husband and two kids, and they are driving me absolutely nuts. In order to escape them, I've taken to long walks around the neighborhood. One particular day, I'm walking, and a SUV stops me, and the man inside says, Have you seen a young girl walking around? She's 11, and she ran away from home this morning. I haven't seen anybody, so I say, No, but I'll definitely keep an eye out. Thank you, he says before he drives off. I'm about a block from home when I see a girl coming from behind the building. She's not wearing shoes or a coat, even though it's a little cold outside. She has on a bright pink short-sleeved shirt and pink pajama pants that are too small for her. She's walking alone with her head down and her arms crossed, but I can see that her young face is dirty and tear-streaked, and her hair is just filthy. It's oily on top with white flakes, and she's got like a large rat's nest in the middle. And I'm thinking, what the hell did she run away from? I stop her, I say, excuse me, are you okay? And she says, yeah. She looks up and down the street, and I ask, is somebody looking for you? And she nods her head, yes. So I ask her, honey, is there someone I can call? Maybe the police? No, no, you don't have to call the police. And so I ask, okay, can you remember any phone numbers? Do you have maybe a family or a friend I can call? And she stands there like she's thinking about a phone number, but she can't come up with anything. So I say, sweetheart, we can call the police and get you somewhere safe. She finally agrees, and so we give the police a call. So while we're standing around waiting for an officer to show up, I ask, sweetheart, did somebody hurt you? And she's crying, and she says, no, but they were about to. Mom told me to help clean up, but I didn't want to. And I can't believe that this situation escalated because she didn't want to do her chores. I was about to give her my own mom spiel about everyone in a family pitching in, when the red SUV that stopped me initially pulls up. I get really anxious because I don't fully know the situation and she might still be in trouble. So when the woman comes out of the passenger seat of the SUV and says to me, oh, thank God you found her. I say, ma'am, you are not taking this child right now because we are waiting for the police and I am just hoping that they don't drag her back into the vehicle. But she says, that's fine, we'll wait here all day. So as we're standing there, she starts yelling at the girl. Why'd you run away? You can't be doing that. Somebody could have kidnapped you and hurt you. And the girl screams back, I don't care. Let somebody kidnap me. It's better than living with you. I don't want to clean your fucking house. Then mom yells back, I can't help that I have to work. You need to help around the house. Just look at your sisters. And so the man in the SUV rolls down the back windows and there are two girls in the back, one of whom is recording this exchange on her phone. And the other one starts screaming, just don't come home then. And the girl screams, just leave me alone. Just leave me the fuck alone. And I'm standing there hoping that things don't go to blows because I don't want to be pulling these people off of each other if the police show up. A police officer finally shows up and I immediately say, hey, I don't know these people. I just happen to be walking. Here's my side of the story. He listens and he says, okay, ma'am, thank you for your help. You're free to go. As I'm leaving, I look into the rolled down window of the passenger seat and I see mom and she is just sobbing in defeat and frustration. And we make eye contact and she says, I don't know what to do with her. She's on medication and her behavior gets worse. And mother to mother, I feel terrible for her. And so I say, you know, ma'am, I really get it. The kids are cooped up all day. Parents, we're worried about how we're going to pay these bills. Some of us are still working. 
It all takes a toll, and I just wish you all the very best. I turn to walk away, grateful that I'm quarantined with a family that I don't necessarily want to run away from, despite the way they drive me absolutely nuts. I'm coming to you live from my closet where life is safe and um, also the sound is is better. So that's what we decided to do. You can see this is something I took straight off the rack and put on. I actually put on, I, I put my hair up and put on makeup and a dress, which I never do when I go out. And now I'm doing it in my closet. So here we are, <laughs> new times. So um, let's see. I have never been able to sit still very well. I will hike. I will bike. I will cook. I will clean. I will pace. I will do anything to keep from sitting still. Oh, and also date. Date's another activity. My friends call me Activity Gale. And um, in 2009, um, my dating activity was um, what I call defensive dating because I was very much in love with a fellow who couldn't commit. So, of course, I had to have some other options so I wouldn't fall even further in love with him. I had some pretty good options. I had, um, I had an architect. I had an IT guy. Um, there was a sculptor. So everything was going great. I had all these different options. I had the guy I loved. I was being active until um, the diagnosis. Cancer, curable, but I had a lot of decisions to make. And that's not exactly fodder for, you know, second date uh, conversation. So I, um, you know, go to dinner and say, what, do I want uh, chicken wings? Um, do I want to get nachos or chemo or radiation? I can't decide. So um, I told the guys that I would call them back after cancer. And I leaned into Wes, who was the non-commitment guy a little more. And I thought, well, maybe this would be the Hollywood moment, you know, the Hallmark moment when he would realize that he was in love with me, too. No, um, it was actually the moment when he realized that he wanted to spend weekends with someone else. And my weekends changed completely. I started spending more time alone. And this was the height of the 2009 recession, so I didn't have work to distract me, and the chemo started to make me more tired. And But I had great support. My friends would go with me to doctor's appointments, and Wes would come over occasionally. But I went from being activity, Gail, to somebody who was sitting on the couch all the time. And and it was, I was, you know, what could I do? I would just, I, I would... Uh, meditate. I tried to meditate. I did jigsaw puzzles. And I found myself, it was like I was morphing into this different person that I didn't really recognize. I started to just have different reactions to things. And I was quieter. I was a, a listener instead of someone who talked maybe too much. I was an introvert. I became a philosopher. And, and I could feel, I felt different. No one else seemed to notice it, but but I felt it. And it was, it was exciting, but, but weird. And then the hair fell out. And that was weird. I didn't, I, turns out I do have a nice shaped head. So that was good to know. <laughs> and um, I was embarrassed though by the bald part. I didn't, I was really envious of the people, the women who would go out with, with just the scarves, you know, the head scarves, or they'd go out bald. But I didn't, I didn't, I feel like that was too much information for people. I didn't really want people to know and I didn't want pity. So I went out once actually with bald, with just the bald head and I think maybe a scarf. And this bald guy opened a door for me, which was nice. But 
I didn't know if it was solidarity or pity, but I didn't do it again. I got a bunch of wigs. I got a whole bunch of wigs, and I got wigs for all sorts of different like moods. I had my um, surfer girl wig, my blonde surfer girl wig, and I had a, a wavy brown hair wig that's kind of like my hair now. My hair's up now, so you sort of see. But um, And then I had um, a mullet. I had a blonde mullet. And I also had a uh, sassy redhead wig. It was really short, kind of, yeah, it was really that sort of perky, short, sassy wig. And depending on the mood, I would just wear a different wig. And so um, as chemo went on, the doctor told me I could just return to normal life, which for me, normal life meant my options. It meant that I would date. So I told my friends and Wes and my family that I was going to date again. It was time to date. And everybody, it turns out that people who don't have cancer have a lot of opinions about how people with cancer should spend their free time. They told me that I should wait. Wait until your hair grows back. Why don't you wait and concentrate on something else? What else was I supposed to concentrate on? I was fine. I was not dying. I didn't need to concentrate on anything else. I wanted to be normal. And, you know, what I heard from them when they said that, what I heard was that they were telling me that nobody would be attracted to, nobody would want to be with a bald girl. So, I made it an adventure. And one Sunday night, I didn't tell anybody, but I put an ad on Craigslist. The heading of my Craigslist ad was Bald Girl Seeking Romance. <laughs> and here's what I wrote. It would be fun to find a fun, fit, smart fellow who likes a nice shaped head. I'm returning to normal after a crazy medical scare, cancer in parentheses, that required a bit of chemo. It's back, great to be back and better than ever, feeling ready to meet a cool guy, friendship, dating, or at least explore the sweet world of kissing. I downplayed the whole trauma part. Within two hours, I got 45 responses. I had to take the ad down. I was tired. I couldn't possibly respond to all those people. Here's what they said. One fellow wrote, I thought it was such an incredible coincidence that I was thinking about posting an ad looking for a bald girlfriend. I know it sounds unbelievable, but it's true. It probably doesn't mean anything, but I thought that it would be nice to connect with someone who had a similar experience as my own. I'm a cancer survivor too, leukemia. Another fellow said, this was Steve from Yahoo 54, said, tall, athletic, with a full head of hair, should make for an interesting contrast. Another guy wrote, hi, bald girl, it sounds like your nightmare is behind you, I'm genuinely happy for you. Another fellow wrote, a good bald head woman is so hard to find these days. I've always wanted one for myself, but it seems like all the good baldies were taken. <laughs> Maybe we should get to know each other until your hair grows in, of course, and then you know the old saying, hair today, gone tomorrow. When the peach fuzz grows in, I'll be gone. <laughs> a good feat or a plus. Another, the Frenchman complimented me on my originality. Another fella said, I'm sorry to hear that. I just got through testicular cancer last year. Let's have some fun. A guy, another guy wrote, um, just because of your bravery and boldness, where only a few in the world would dare put themselves out there, you deserved my response and my admiration. Good for you. Anyway, it's your incredible positive attitude and straightforwardness that attracted me to you. Your baldness, although temporary, did too. I got a penis pick. I think that guy sends to everyone, but
but I actually really was happy that I wasn't left out. I got to be normal. <laughs> um, then I got another email, and I really loved this one from a woman who said, um, I'm not looking for a date, but I'm going through cancer treatment too, and I just wanted to let you know that your ad made me feel normal, like it's okay to go on. Yes, it is. I did go on a few dates. None of them worked out. Um, the Frenchman was, he saw me with bald and with other things off as well. No wig and no other things. I met the tall guy and we had coffee. Um, it turns out it's, it's, it's really just as hard to find love with hair as it is without hair. <laughs> and, um, well, I guess I, I guess you could say my friends were right. I wasn't ready to date, but I was ready to feel pretty. And 45 guys in two hours made me feel pretty wanted and pretty, like there were options for me, you know. There's still like a little part of that Gale too, that introvert that sort of merged into the part of me that has made me a better listener and probably a better storyteller. And I have some good skills now for spending time at home and for being solitary. I think I'm better at that. I don't know how I'm going to morph in our, our latest version of of challenge, but I think that since I'm starting it off by doing a show in my closet, wearing makeup with some of my favorite people, I think the possibilities are endless, and um, I'm really glad that we're doing this. So, thank you very much. That's me. <laughs> Just give 
just give me one thing that I can hold on to. To believe in this living is just a hard way to go. That is all for this week's episode, folks. We wanted to honor John Prine, who we lost last week. He's singing in this recording with Bonnie Raitt. And we just heard from Gail Thomas. <laughs> Gail is a very dear member of the Risk and Story Studio family. People found it so charming that Gail spoke to the world from inside her closet because the sound was so much better in there. And it really, like... Did that that evening was so special, and then it led to the second Risk live stream, which was so special. And please don't miss out on the third one, which is Saturday, April 18th, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. London Time. We're hoping that folks who love the show, who are in Europe especially, will be checking it out. Fabulous, fabulous cast. Dixie De La Tour of Body Storytelling, Richard Cardillo and Jude Trader-Wolf, two of our favorite New York storytellers, and Will Attenborough from over there in London will be joining us. going to be a fabulous time. Saturday at 7 p.m. London time, go to risk-show.com slash tour for tickets. Now, before Gail Thomas, we heard from Wanda Wilson-Bowser. That was a little anecdote. Wanda heard us on the podcast calling out to all our fans saying, hey, do you have a story that might be under four minutes, you know, like around three and a half minutes or less, about something that's happened to you during this COVID situation? An unforgettable conversation you had, something you witnessed happening out in public, whatever the case may be, do you have a little incident you'd like to share about? Email me at kevin at risk-show.com and I can tell you how. Before Wanda Wilson-Bowser, we heard a little audio interstitial by Scott Stronick. Scott reached out to us and voluntarily sent us that fabulous interstitial. Listen, you can find him at soundmindediting.com if you want to work with him on your own podcast or any sort of audio work you might need. That's where you can find Scott. Now, our final storyteller, Gail Thomas, also teaches many of our online storytelling workshops at thestorystudio.org. She's teaching one for storytelling for business. It is a six-week class. It starts on April 16th. It meets from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursdays. And you'll be there with a whole group of other people who are learning how to tell storytelling in the business context. But there's a whole slew of different types of workshops you can find at thestorystudio.org. Two-day workshops, videos that you can download and watch in your own time, one-on-one -on -one sessions that you can arrange, corporate workshops, if your staff might be interested in a workshop, a team building, a morale boosting, a, a project that you're working on that you want everyone to be on the same page as to how to communicate about it, look for us at thestorystudio.org. 
I also do one-on-one work with people online. If you go to kevinallison.com, you can sign up for a half-hour session or an hour-long session. I work with people on stories of all kinds or presentations of all kinds, artistic and creative projects of all kinds, people working on memoirs or solo shows or podcasts. I work with people who just want to brainstorm with me on reviewing some of their memories and just beginning to look at what some of their stories might end up being about. And I meet with people just to talk about their lives. I just do some personal mentoring with folks. That is all at kevinallison.com. And everything you want to know about risk is at risk-show.com. Or you can visit us at our socials on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Risk Show. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Make me an angel Flies from Montgomery Make me a poster Of an old rodeo Just give me one thing That I can hold on to To believe in this living Hard way to go to believe in this living is just a hard way to go. But let me share this special evening with you. Hey, yo, that purring is mad dope. Yo, that shit is mad ill. Word. You got this shit, cat? Hey, yo! That cat is mad ill. Word.